Chapter 30 Of a Mind That Found Itself by Clifford Whittingham Beers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Read by Tom Daly. Chapter 30 On more than one occasion, my chameleon like temperament had enabled me to adjust myself to new conditions but never has it served me better than it did at the time of which I write. A free man on New Year's Day, enjoying the pleasures of a congenial club life, four days later I found myself again under the lock and key of an institution for the insane. Never had I enjoyed life in New York more than during those first days of that new year. To suffer so rude a change was, indeed, enough to arouse a feeling of discontent, if not despair. Yet aside from the momentary initial shock, my contentment was in no degree diminished. I can say with truth that I was as complacent the very moment I recrossed the threshold of that retreat as I had been when crossing and recrossing at will the threshold of my club. Of everything I thought and did during the interesting weeks which followed, I have a complete record. The moment I accepted the inevitable, I determined to spend my time to good advantage, knowing from experience that I must observe my own case, if I was to have any detailed record of it, I provided myself in advance with notebooks. In these I recorded, I might almost say, my every thought and action. The sane part of me, which fortunately was dominant, subjected its temporary unruly part to a sort of scientific scrutiny and surveillance. From morning till night I dogged the step of my restless body and my more restless imagination. I observed the physical and mental symptoms which I knew were characteristic of elation. An exquisite light-heartedness, an exalted sense of well-being, my pulse, my weight, my appetite, all these I observed and recorded with a care that would have put to the blush a majority of the doctors in charge of mental cases in institutions. But this record of symptoms, though minute, was vague compared to my reckless analysis of my emotions. With a lack of reserve characteristic of my mood, I described the joy of living which, for the most part, then consisted in the joy of writing. And even now, when I reread my record, I find that I cannot overstate the pleasure I found in surrendering myself completely to that controlling impulse. The excellence of my composition seemed to me beyond criticism, and as to one in a state of elation, things are pretty much as they seem, I was able to experience the subtle delight which, I fancy, thrilled the soul of a master. During this month of elation, I wrote words enough to fill a book nearly as large as this one. Having found that each filling of my fountain pen was sufficient for the writing of about 2,800 words, I kept a record of the number of times I filled it. This minute calculation I carried to an extreme. If I wrote for 59 minutes, then read for 17, those facts I recorded. Thus, in my diary and out of it, I wrote and wrote until the tips of my thumb and forefinger grew numb. As this numbness increased and general weariness of the hand set in, there came a gradual flagging of my creative impulse, 
until a very normal unproductivity supervened. The reader may well wonder in what my so-called insanity at the time consisted. Had I any of those impracticable delusions which had characterized my former period of elation? No, not one. Unless my unreasonable haste to achieve my ambitions may be counted a delusion, my attention simply focused itself on my project. All other considerations seemed of little moment. My interest in business waned to the vanishing point. Yet one thing should be noted. I did deliberately devote many hours to the consideration of business affairs. Realizing that one way to overcome an absorbing impulse is to divide the attention, I wrote a brief of the arguments I had often used when talking with bankers. In this way, I was able to convince the doctors that my intense interest in literature and reform would soon spend itself. A consuming desire to effect reforms had been the determining factor when I calmly weighed the situation with a view to making the best possible use of my impulse to write. The events of the immediate past had convinced me that I could not hope to interest people of wealth and influence in my humanitarian project until I had some definite plan to submit for their leisurely consideration. Further, I had discovered that an attempt to approach them directly disturbed my relatives and friends, who had not yet learned to dissociate present intentions from past performances. I had, therefore, determined to drill myself in the art of composition to the end that I might write a story of my life which would merit publication. I felt that such a book, once written, would do its own work, regardless of my subsequent fortunes. Other books had spoken even from the grave. Why should not my book so speak, if necessary? With this thought in mind, I began not only to read and write, but to test my impulse in order that I might discover, if it were part of my very being, an abnormal impulse or a mere whim. I reasoned that to compare my own feelings toward literature and my emotions experienced in the heat of composition with the recorded feelings of successful men of letters would give me a clue to the truth on this question. At this time I read several books that could have served as a basis for my deductions, but only one of them did I have time to analyze and note in my diary. That one was Wit and Wisdom of the Earl of Beaconsfield. The following passages from the pen of Disraeli I transcribed in my diary with occasional comment. Remember who you are, and also that it is your duty to excel. Providence has given you a great lot. Think ever that you are born to perform great duties. This I interpreted in much the same spirit that I had interpreted the 45th Psalm on an earlier occasion. It was that noble ambition, the highest and best, that must be born in the heart and organized in the brain, which will not let a man be content unless his intellectual power is recognized by his race and desires that it should contribute to their welfare. Authors, the creators of opinion. What appears to be calamities are often the sources of fortune. Change is inevitable in a progressive country. Change is constant. 
then why was my recorded comment cannot the changes i propose to bring about be brought about the author is as we must ever remember of peculiar organization he is a being born with a predisposition which with him is irresistible the bent of which he cannot in any way avoid whether it directs him to the abstruse researches of erudition or induces him to mount into the fervid and turbulent atmosphere of imagination this i wrote the day after arriving at the hospital is a fair diagnosis of my case as it stands to-day assuming of course that an author is one who loves to write and can write with ease even though what he says may have no literary value my past proves that my organization is a peculiar one i have for years two and a half had a desire to achieve success along literary lines i believe that feeling as i do to-day nothing can prevent my writing if i had to make a choice at once between a sure success in the business career ahead of me and doubtful success in the field of literature i would willingly yes confidently choose the latter i have read many a time about successful writers who learned how to write and by dint of hard work ground out their ideas if these men could succeed why should not a man who is in danger of being ground up by an excess of ideas and imagination succeed when he seems able to put those ideas into fairly intelligible english he should and will succeed therefore without delay i began the course of experiment and practice which culminated within a few months in the very first draft of my story wise enough to realize the advantages of a situation free from the annoying interruptions of the workaday world i enjoyed a degree of liberty seldom experienced by those in possession of complete legal liberty and its attendant obligations when i wished to read write talk walk sleep or eat i did the thing i wished i went to the theatre when the spirit moved me to do so accompanied of course by an attendant who on such occasions played the role of chum friends called to see me and at their suggestion or mine invited me to dinner outside the walls of my cloister at one of these dinners an incident occurred which throws a clear light on my condition at the time the friend whose willing prisoner i was had invited a common friend to join the party the latter had not heard of my recent commitment at my suggestion he who shared my secret had agreed not to refer to it unless i first broached the subject there was nothing strange in the fact that we three should meet just such impromptu celebrations had before occurred among us we dined and as friends will indulged in that exchange of thoughts which bespeaks intimacy during our talk i so shaped the conversation that the possibility of a recurrence of my mental illness was discussed the uninformed friend derided the idea then if i were to tell you i remarked that i am at this moment supposedly insane at least not normal and that when i leave you to-night i shall go direct to the very hospital where i was formerly confined there to remain until the doctors pronounce me fit for freedom what would you say 
"'I should say that you are a choice sort of liar,' he retorted. This genial insult I swallowed with gratification. It was, in truth, a timely and encouraging compliment, the force of which its author failed to appreciate until my host had corroborated my statements. If I could so favorably impress an intimate friend at a time when I was elated, it is not surprising that I should subsequently hold an interview with a comparative stranger, the cashier of a local bank, without betraying my state of mind. As business interviews go, this was in a class by itself. While my attendant stood guard at the door, I, an enrolled inmate of a hospital for the insane, entered the banking-room and talked with a level-headed banker. And that interview was not without effect in subsequent negotiations which led to the closing of a contract amounting to $150,000. The very day I re-entered the hospital, I stopped on the way at a local hotel and procured some of the hostelry stationery. By using this in the writing of personal and business letters, I managed to conceal my condition and my whereabouts from all except near relatives and a few intimate friends who shared the secret. I quite enjoyed leading this legitimate double life. The situation appealed, not in vain, to my sense of humor. Many a smile did I indulge in when I closed a letter with such ambiguous phrases as the following. Matters of importance necessitate my remaining where I am for an indefinite period. A situation has recently arisen which will delay my intended trip south. As soon as I have closed a certain contract, having in mind my contract to re-establish my sanity, I shall again take to the road. To this day, few friends or acquaintances know that I was in semi-exile during the month of January 1905. My desire to suppress the fact was not due, as already intimated, to any sensitiveness regarding the subject of insanity. What afterwards justified my course was that, on regaining my freedom, I was able, without embarrassment, again to take up my work. Within a month of my voluntary commitment, that is, in February, I started on a business trip through the central west and south, where I remained until the following July. During those months I felt perfectly well, and have remained in excellent health ever since. This second interruption of my career came at a time and in a manner to furnish me with strong arguments wherewith to support my contention that so-called madmen are too often man-made and that he who is potentially mad may keep a saving grip on his own reason if he be fortunate enough to receive that kindly and intelligent treatment to which one on the brink of mental chaos is entitled. Though during this second period of elation I was never in a mood so reckless as that which obtained immediately after my recovery from depression in August 1902, I was at least so excitable that, had those in authority attempted to impose upon me, I should have thrown discretion to the winds. To them, indeed, I frankly reiterated a terse dictum, which I had coined during my first period of elation. Just press the button of injustice, I said, and I'll do the rest. 
This I meant, for fear of punishment does not restrain a man in the daredevil grip of elation. What fostered my self-control was a sense of gratitude. The doctors and attendants treated me as a gentleman. Therefore, it was not difficult to prove myself one. My every whim was at least considered with a politeness which enabled me to accept a denial with a highly sane equanimity. Aside from mild tonics, I took no other medicine than the most beneficial sort, which inheres in kindness. The feeling that, though a prisoner, I could still command obligations from others, led me to recognize my own reciprocal obligations, and was a constant source of delight. The doctors, by proving their title to that confidence which I tentatively gave them upon re-entering the institution, had no difficulty in convincing me that a temporary curtailment of some privileges was for my own good. They all evinced a consistent desire to trust me. In return, I trusted them. End of chapter 30